Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Pip Wheeland. She commissioned into the Australian Army Psychology Corps in 2003, and in her career performed diverse roles across clinical, organizational, professional development, research, and staff positions. She has deployed to the Solomon Islands, Iraq, and to Afghanistan on two occasions. Whilst deployed to Afghanistan, she was the lead in the critical incident response to Australian Army soldiers killed in action. She ended her military career in 2020 as the commanding officer of the first psychology unit. Pip was also awarded a conspicuous service cross in the 2018 Queen's Birthday Honours List for the superior management of several sensitive, high-profile matters, including the immediate psychological response to witnesses to the death of a soldier in training. Pip has a Bachelor of Arts degree with a double major in psychology, a postgraduate diploma in psychology, and a Master of Organisational Psychology with a distinction. Her thesis focused on enhancing resilience in a military training environment. In 2013, she graduated with a Master of Military Studies from the Australian National University and also completed a postgraduate certificate in coaching psychology in 2018. Pip is passionate about evidence-based treatments and has a special interest in psychological resilience and the mental health issues associated with exposure to combat. She is now a Regional Director for Open Arms, an organisation focused on providing mental health and wellbeing support for current and ex-serving Australian Defence Force personnel and their families. Pip, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, no, thank you. Now, you have an absolutely amazing career and, and just reading that bio, it's absolutely incredible how much experience you have over 17 years in the Army. Uh, before we delve into all of that experience, maybe we can start with maybe a simple question. What made you join the Army in the first place? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. So um, I'm an Army brat. I'm the fourth generation of uh, the Wheelands to make wow. Army a career. Yeah, so I grew up around um, the military and there was lots of really positive things about that. Um, it's a very supportive environment. But I also um, grew up seeing what the impacts of mental health are on families and friends when it's not addressed or managed. So I was very passionate about joining the military, but specifically as a psychologist to see if there's more that we could be doing while people are current serving, um, to have a good impact on them, but also for family and friends. Right. Okay. So what obviously stands out there is you growing up, you've seen the impact of military service on families. Do you mean your own family? Yeah, that's right. Uh, my father was um, a career army officer and so was his um, father and his father's father. Yeah, and I was quite lucky uh, when I did join, there were a lot of, they just introduced a lot of very positive screening tools, for example, and a, a new regime of how to support um, current serving with their mental health issues. So as I um, joined in 2003, they'd introduced the psychological screening system, so where everyone that deploys um, gets the opportunity to speak to a psych or a psychological examiner before they return home. So it was a very rewarding period um, to start. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it was uh, 2003, right? So this was uh, really the beginning of, uh, or after the first few years of the Australian Army 
becoming deployable again and operational after what was commonly referred to as a peacetime army. So was that really then the reason for psychology? Had you had an interest in psychology previously or, or was, it, was it driven by the fact that you've seen the impact on your own family by service life? I think I've always been interested in um, human behaviour and why we do certain things. Um, as I was going through university, I was a bartender and I joke and say, look, the real psychologists out in society tend to be our bartenders, our hairdressers and our taxi drivers. So um, I make the joke about um, I wanted to be a psychologist because I'll get paid more than minimum wage <laughs> for um, <laughs> discussing uh, people's issues um, with them. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, you cut your teeth on uh, certainly in bartending then. You've done, so throughout your career and, and quite an extensive career, you've done a number of deployments to Solomon Islands, Iraq, and I think, you, uh, as, as I read out in the bio, twice to Afghanistan. Was this all then in psychology roles? Yeah, that's right. And um, it was, as I said, it was a really interesting time to join in 2003, because as, as you mentioned, that's when we started really getting back into uh, deployments. And so I found within the first 18 months, I had my first deployment, and then it just carried on from then. So it was a very um, exciting and intense period. What was that deployment? Where to? Oh, sorry, that was to Iraq, actually, and that was to do the psychological um, screening for a rotation over there. For, so for troops coming back, is it? Yeah, that's right. What, what, what does that involve? Maybe, I mean, because a, a lot of my listeners or our listeners uh, will be familiar with the kind of post-operational psych uh, and the screening process, but those who haven't served might not really understand what it is or its value. So maybe can you describe why we do it and what it involves? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so some of the listeners might um, remember having um, had an RTAPS, which is a return to Australia psychological screen. So as um, before returning home, they obviously have medical checks. Um, but what they introduced, and it was around um, that period of uh, 2003, was to um, have a session with a psychologist or a psychological examiner, which are our psych soldiers, and filling out paperwork like a psych assessment, so answering survey. And what that's trying to do is uh, just to screen for any probable mental health disorder. But then it's having the opportunity to actually sit down and speak to up to an hour with a psychologist about your deployment experience. We found it very useful, not just for you trying to get that early intervention by being able to pick up perhaps problematic symptoms early, but it's also a way where people can really debrief about their deployment experience. And there's value in that um, on just reflecting on what it was like before going home. And then um, it's, it has two phases to it. The first one, as I said, was the RTAPS. Then there's a post-operational psych screen, the POPs. And we do that three to six months after someone's returned. And that's just to see how those symptoms are going. And everyone gets that as well, to see if they go away. And often they, they do. Or if they're still uh, perhaps a bit problematic and we're up to the six-month mark, it might mean we need to get extra support for those people. Yeah, I mean, I remember distinctly going through those processes myself. What's your feel, especially, I guess, now that you're out of the Defence Force, what's your feel? How, how successful were those uh, processes, I guess? I think um, they are very important, not just for the, the psychological symptoms and picking up on those. What we picked up as well were um, organisational factors. So there's a lot of questions there about what was the leadership and morale like, and we're able to use outcomes from that to better prepare for new operations. And I think one of the real benefits of doing screening, so what we're doing is 
psychologists, are, uh, there's not many of us, and to use them to mostly screen a healthy population, you know, that's a luxury to be able to do. But I think one of the great outcomes when you implement something where every single person has to do it, I think it really impacted the stigma associated with it if everyone has to do it and it kind of normalized it's okay to um, see a psych we all have to anyhow and I think it was a really um, it would have helped I believe in if that's your first introduction to a psychologist you might if you have issues down the track not be so resistant to actually going to get um, assistance if you've already had that um, introductory experience. Yeah that's interesting Uh, yeah I had never actually thought about um, in, in that way, because you're a, you've got a, a huge amount of data to work with to understand the organizational pressures and how the organization is managing the exceptional stress of, of deployments in combat, but also the fact that you're yeah that's a really important point of reducing that stigma because that is one of those things I can speak from my own personal experience. A going to a psych while on deployment as well as post deployment or pre deployment. There's always this kind of oh. What can I say? You know, how is this going to, you know, because we all want to go and do our job. But if I, you know, there's a stigma surrounded, uh, surrounding the idea of going to speak to the sites because, you know, they might hear something and, you know, prevent you from deploying or prevent you from doing your job. And many would probably, you know, certainly in my time that I've spoken to people, many would actually say that, yeah, it's kind of ticking a box, right? Going to see the psych, you kind of know what you need to say and what to answer. What would you say to those people? And I know it's a difficult question. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I and I have been asked before, they're like, do soldiers actually ever speak to you <laughs> because um, of, of those concerns that you've just raised there? And in that private space, one-on-one, they do. So I have, um, thankfully, um, I suppose you can see this both ways. It's positive and negative. Always incredibly busy as a psychologist, like booked out. So that means people are using it, those services. I suppose the negative, it's just sad that, you know, they're required um, to that extent. But I do find that people are um, very open once you have that rapport and, and that trust. But it's interesting what you raised, you know, some of the concerns you had. They really reflect what we've seen in, um, you know, survey results. It's not so much the stigma about why go to a psychologist, what use would they be, because that's an area of stigma. It's more within the military. People are concerned about going to see a psychologist because it will, one, perhaps impact their employability or that's what their perception is and it'll impact their ability to deploy again. Yeah. On a previous episode, I spoke at length to Ashley Judd, who uh, I know you and I spoke about um, also separately, uh, but he expressed that quite clearly and he ended up suffering PTSD due to his experiences. So that's a, so, so that is a real, I guess, hurdle for people to overcome uh, when going and seeking seeking professional help. So I, but I have always found that it's useful, right? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you're not necessarily just, you're trained to the point that you are able to see where the red flags are over a period of time, right? So so there's, a, there's also a comparison of how a person responded before they went to how they responded when they came back, right? So all this analysis is arguably done. Am I, am I correct in that? Yeah, that's that's right. And I think, um, you know, these concerns about impacting employability, deployability, at times it, it can. And that's protective of the individual. If they're not well, to go back into a war zone isn't it's, it's likely to exacerbate um, the, the symptoms. But what we do know is about one in five uh, current serving members have experienced uh, mental health um, disorder in their lifetime. 
and these people still deploy. Um, it's really about getting that help, managing it, because if we didn't think that people could change or that that we're able to learn skills to manage it, we wouldn't have psychology. That's what it's all about, is identifying those symptoms and getting more control over them, managing them, and then being able to continue employment and to de- deploy. Yeah, and I think that's a really powerful insight. And I think that's part of dispelling this myth that, you know, that's a powerful figure, one in five of us. Um, have experienced some sort of mental health challenge. I think that's a that's real insight. That's twenty percent of the force, but you know people are still deploying. So I think it's if we look at mental health, and maybe that's part of the challenge is to look at mental health as you know like breaking your arm, right? It's uh, it things heal, but I think there's we're getting better, obviously, because of all the work that uh, people like yourself have done over the years. But we still kind of look at mental health. Oh no, I'm, I'm, you know, this is going to impact me uh, severely. And, and again, just to bring Ash in again, he himself said, even though he was uh, he suffered severe PTSD, ultimately after his treatment, it was, it was again potentially deployable, even though he chose a different career path for himself from there. So yeah, that's that. Those are really interesting insights. Do you have any any comments on that? Yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, that's really good to, um, to have um, heard um, from Ash Judd because that, that is the case. Uh, we have that concept of resilience. Um, so not what, what we're not looking for is for someone to never have been experienced a mental health issue. It, it's, as, as you, we've pointed out, um, one in, and five do, but it's more about how they manage it, how they bounce back and how they go forward. And, yeah, there's many people out there that um, ha- are managing mental health issues and still performing very high standard and, and are able to deploy. And just to echo that as well, I think it's one of the things, is I, as you know, I've been out of the military for, you know, nearly seven years and came back in not so long ago. But now I'm finding it really, really, I was warmly surprised that people are openly saying, oh, yeah, I'm in treatment for X, Y, Z, which is really very different to when I left in 2013. Certainly, uh, there seems to be a different vibe about this idea of uh, actually, you know, seeking help, that it's not something that's frowned upon. So that's a certainly a very, very positive change that I've noticed in the short time that I've been back. Um, you've had a particular a particular experience during a tour in Afghanistan, which was the critical incident response management. What happened? Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, I look back on that uh, deployment in 2010 as, as my most uh, rewarding experience in my military career and one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had, you know, in my life total, I think. Uh, and I don't think I'm alone with that. Um, deployment often comes up, I think, for veterans as one of those rewarding uh, career highlights. And I think it's because um, it was rewarding, it was very, but it was also very challenging as well. So um, I went over there. I was based in Tarancot and I was a relatively junior psychologist still. And within the first four weeks I was there, we unfortunately had seven Australian soldiers killed in action. So um, it was straight in there and it it felt overwhelming for all of us because it was in very, you know, a very short time period. And it was very um, interesting to see how we all reacted to this. And there was positives um, I saw in this experience. So I was um, very busy as the only psychologist at Taron Cot, 
And although I saw a lot of very heightened emotion, as you would expect, because it's providing that psychological response almost, you know, a few days after an event um, occurs, what when I refer to it being rewarding, it was the level of resilience that I saw in, you know, the task force as as a group, um, how they responded. And um, the quality of the leadership, particularly from juniors like Lance Corporals, Corporals and um, Captain level was incredibly impressive. Um, and I think I've been very lucky to have been able to see that for myself on the ground. Yeah, of course. And I'm sure there are many people that are grateful that uh, someone of your empathy and skill was there to help. Can you maybe just um, describe what do you mean by what is a critical incident response? What, what does that involve? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to take you through that. That's actually quite a formal system. It's very much like the screening system we have, you know, for the return to Australia psychological screen. But what I wanted to point out here, because um, I think it's important to know, and I don't think it, it is well known, if there is a critical incident, for example, someone is killed um, in, in combat, we actually send a psychologist forward to, you know, close not exactly where the event occurred, but to a forward operating um, base to provide that psychological um, assistance. And I think it's important to know for those that might be back home, like uh, particularly parents and, and partners, that if something does go wrong, we send the padre, we send a psychologist forward to provide that, that important support. And we tend to do that uh, a couple of days after the incident in 2010, it was interesting um, to see what it's actually like providing psychological care in a war zone and in, in response to crisis. Um, I've had ex experience, like I've been trained in things like prolonged exposure therapy for trauma, but they're not the skills that I was using in response to a crisis. Really, what it looks like on the ground, we work on what's called the PIES principle, and that's an acronym that stands for proximity. So that means that we send um, psychologists forward close to the people and the actual event. I is for immediacy. So we try to do that shortly after the event. E is for expectancy. So that's that's based off the concept of resilience, that the majority of people will be will do well and that their expectation that is once people have stabilised, they go back out and continue their, their job. And the S is for simplicity. And that's, as I said, you're not using those, you know, those in intensive um, psychological skills like prolonged exposure therapy. Often you're using what they refer to as mental health first aid. So it's a lot about grounding people and calming them down um, so that they're able to go back out and continue with their, their job. Right. That's that's really interesting. Uh, I, I found it interesting as well that you said it, it, you go in a couple of days after the incident. Is there a particular reason why you like as in why those couple of days we don't want a psychologist in there? Yeah, yeah, there is. So that's um, based on best practice. So it, what they've just found um, through th throughout years and lots of different incidents, that it is not helpful if the psych turns up immediately. And it's because what we know about response to trauma, that the best um, thing that people can do is rely on their normal coping skills. So that builds resilience as well with people knowing that they are able to try to respond to an event themselves. That builds that confidence. 
but also we know the importance about um, social support. So people on the ground supporting their mates and getting through it that way. And really what you can see after a couple of days when people have settled a bit and they, the vast majority do over a few days, um, the psych will come in and just do that assessment to see, you know, if there's anyone there with um, any concerning symptoms. But it's really um, focused on supporting those natural behaviours that we all have, how we would cope to if something um, really bad happened and we would be relying on leadership and our mates. Yeah, which again goes to the point that uh, you raised about how rewarding it was to see the resilience and the leadership. And I think it also makes make sense from a sense of identity perspective. I mean, you are in your in a very distinct in-group combat zone and you, for anybody that's deployed, knows how strong those bonds can be between that particular in-group. Uh, and when something like this happens, of course, it's going to be the in-group perhaps that galvanizes and becomes even stronger because of that adversity, but it's also that in-group that will validate and support and, and kind of uh, reframe that particular incident with uh, with that particular unit. And I guess that kind of uh, go- goes a little bit to that point of why deployments in general are rewarding, because I guess we you know train hard and then we go out to do a job and you're kind of out there on your own with your, uh, with your mates. Uh, and I can certainly think of many people that I've spoken to uh, that would echo what you said, that uh, deployments are generally viewed as one of our most rewarding experiences in life. Um, And I guess it's also maybe because of a sense of purpose that when we deploy and we have a a, a mission and and a vision that we're trying to, I guess, carry through. uh, So that sense of purpose is perhaps also really critical, maybe also in the post-care uh, well, I wonder if it is, and that's 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 probably a question to you. Is is reinforcing that sense of purpose when we deploy overseas part of that recovery process, as you said in the in the PIES uh, process? Yeah, very much so. Um, and I think that's what helps people cope as well as those things that you're referring to is the that leadership, the mateship, um, all working together for a common um, outcome. And that's why we don't like to evacuate people out that are having a mental health response if we don't need to, because it is so important that they stay, you know, with their unit, with their team as they're, they're recovering, if we're able to do that. I think um, sense of purpose comes, I feel, comes to the heart also to when we see um, people having difficulties on transition out of the military. So not just on um, see a, a bit of this when they're returning back to Australia and often, you know, they get posted out elsewhere and the team breaks up and, and may, um, struggling, may be struggling with that sense of purpose. But we do see that with those that struggle on leaving their military career. I think it, personally I feel that it, it's related to a loss of identity and some of that loss of value or, or sense of purpose in life, which was, from my experience, what I've seen of others, uh, just so evident when you're in a deployed environment. Mm. And I guess, I mean, the military is a... Is a- that's what military does, right? It breaks down your previous social identities and, and gives you a new one, and one that is, uh, of course, very attractive and is is you know broadly respected in society and has a whole bunch of values and norms that most of us would you know would consider to be uh, quite moral and noble in many ways, right? Starting from you know at least for 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 me as a male, if I recall, the first thing you know is you shave your head and um, you get kind of broken down and then built through the arguably the hardships of your initial training 
uh, into well, more or less a cohesive unit depends on uh, depends on uh, where you start off with, I guess. But it's you know it, it it then kind of diffuses a sense of purpose and a sense of value that you um, that you're sharing with. And I guess that would then make sense. And um, I had written down some notes previously as well. But one of the things that um, really struck me is. Uh, and, and I'm not sure if this is a good time to dive into this particularly dark subject, but since you mentioned the kind of aftercare, it, it's it's a well-known fact that we have, I think, now more than 500 uh, veterans who've committed suicide, uh, which is dozens of times more than we've lost uh, in combat. Uh, and there's a particularly sensitive group, and that is the 18 to 24-year-old males who've been medically discharged. They have four times the average uh, national average uh, suicide rate. And I guess just get to go to your point about purpose and identity, do you think that's a, a principal contributing factor, particularly for that social group? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, when we talk about that younger group, and as you've pointed out, there's statistics to demonstrate that um, they are a particularly at-risk group on, on transition. Um, it also mirrors just what I had noticed um, providing that psych support on the ground um, overseas. It's, I was particularly aware of the reactions from uh, the younger soldiers. It just seemed to be a pattern where they struggled um, more. So there's a little bit about why is that? Um, I suppose some of that might be related to the maturity and experience you get, you know, spending a longer time, um, well, just in age, but also in that career. And yes, you're right, on transition as well. I feel it's not as poignant for that younger age group that many, it's about, yeah, who, who are they now, the identity piece um, and their meaning going forward. Um, now that it's almost like, you know, who's your tribe now when you leave? Who do you relate to? And I quite passionate about um, the importance of looking at these psychosocial factors on, on trans transition. It's not just about how to write a resume. There needs to be that discussion about who are you now? And they refer to it about um, those that tend to do better on transition look at their military experience as, you know, a rewarding or a challenging chapter, but it's not the entire book. And who are they now? It's not you know, your rank anymore or your PMK's number, but who is Bob, Peter or Sarah uh, and who are they going to be stepping forward? And they're conversations that I think we need to have more and, and to reflect on that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, just listening to you, it makes absolute sense, right? I mean, we, we also know from an evolutionary perspective that particularly males in that age group, you know, probably even earlier than that, have 20% or 20 times more testosterone running through their body, you know, that we know that and testosterone being a status seeking hormone, we know that young males are more prone to high risk behavior, which of course, military could be classed as they're also looking more for that tribe, that sense of belonging, that sense of identity. So when you know, that just resonated with me when you spoke to that, because that, of course, partially would explain, right, if you if you've now been through through this really strong bonding experience between a, in a social group, i.e. the military, and especially if you've then gone through some serious hardships, whether that is through uh, just your training or even you know on a deployment, and then you're medically discharged or you leave, like you said, if you haven't, if this is the only tribe, uh, quote unquote, you have developed or, or or become part of, and that's taken away from you, that rather tender formative age you know it really does make sense why taking one's life seems like a 
like a way to still, I guess, the that severe emotional distress that um, such an experience would bring. Um, you are now in a, I guess, in an organization that really deals with these types of challenges to help people, I guess, deal with mental health issues. How, how, how do you do it? How does one do this? So I think um, basically, well, the organisation I'm in at the moment, um, so how do we overcome mental health issues? As, you know, I said in my bio, I'm very passionate about evidence-based care. And so um, what we know is, one of the, you know, one of the best outcomes comes from trauma-focused um, psychotherapy, like prolonged exposure therapy. So that's part of what we do in my organisation. But then it's also supported about just your general um, health and well-being. There needs to be supports also for things like um, the finances, relationships, families, building all that, that up because... Um, we live, you know, within a society, within a family structure, and I think it's important um, to be supporting all those areas as well to be able to stabilise um, and go forward. Right. Okay. So, again, the, the kind of social networks support and, and, again, a sense of purpose, income. That's Maybe we'll then come back to that. Maybe I'll just backtrack to, to maybe illuminate some other uh, points. But how, how do, firstly, how do traumatic events, traumatic events develop into me- mental illness? Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll um, respond to this kind of in layman's um, terms and I might focus on... Please. Yes, yes, <laughs> and I might focus on um, post-traumatic stress disorder in particular So and, and relate that back to exposure to combat or war zones. So when um, we're under immense stress or we're, we feel we're in a position where our life is in danger or that those around us, their lives are in danger, we go into survival mode. And that survival mode, you see it in all animals. It's a fight-flight response. And that kicks in so that we survive in the end. And it's very useful, incredibly adaptive when we're in that environment. What we see down the track, though, is people can uh, return, be out of that environment now where um, they're not in that level of danger and they're still showing those fight-flight responses. And they might be doing it not because in reaction to their inner firefight, it could just be they're picking up um, threats um, in a crowded place, but they're still having that really heightened survival response to that. It's almost like the switch hasn't been turned off when they're now in a safe environment. But PTSD is not the only mental health issue people can have um, having been exposed to trauma or to combat in a war zone. We also know that there's high rates of depression and anxiety. Um, People talk about moral injury as well and having feels of shame and guilt about actions or inaction they perceive they did or didn't do. Um, And then there's that, um, which isn't often talked about, is the command guilt as well. So making a decision which uh, you feel resulted in the death of someone and, and, you know, having to reflect on that and move move forward. Hmm. Yeah, so I guess there's a whole span of different, uh, I guess, experiences that people might have. Are there any kind that throughout your experience and uh, particularly dealing with soldiers in combat, that's you know that conditions that are most prevalent that, that you know that due to due to the nature of the work there's a standout a trigger or your cause or, or or you know or, or type of type of uh, mental health issue 
Yeah, the two ones where um, I, I, I see that, and I would be predicting they're going to more likely have an intense mental health response to, is well, combat in, in a situation where uh, you're, you thought your life was in danger and, and, and those around you were in danger, um, actually witnessing the, the death of someone and um, well, we can imagine the uh, being exposed to an IED blast that resulted in death is an incredibly intense um, scenario and you can imagine the amount of trauma that um, exposes you to. The other, and you, you tend to see this more with those that have been on UN missions um, and this, um, people talk about having yeah, quite strong mental health responses to being in a position where due to the rules of engagement you weren't able to act to save civilians. And that is more along the responses of um, feeling guilt for um, what might have been perceived by the, um, that individual as not acting, being restricted in that situation. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, and, and that again, that intuitively makes sense. I mean, for the first one, being exposed to the the sounds, the sights, the smells of, of exceptionally traumatic death around you uh, would certainly have a have have an impact and then of course the the <laughs> the inability to do something would that be part of that and, and i was interested to hear you mention it moral injury was that would that be full part of moral injury the inability to do something yeah, um, that's when, um, when I have clients that have talked about, um, well, I'm perceiving that they have moral injury from um, the scenario, it tends to be those situations where something happened and they weren't in a position to act in accordance with their own values because they're restricted at, at the time. Or it's about being exposed to things that, yeah, that go against your own um, values and some of these might be cultural uh, differences, um, for example, um, and it, yeah, coping with those things. Go back to that moral injury piece as well. Um, and we've talked about a sense of purpose when people deploy and, you know, we go forth with idealised versions of our contribution and what we're going over there to do. And, you know, most of us put our hand on our heart and say that we're going over there to do good, to help people. And I guess when we then deploy and we see oftentimes that, okay, well, maybe maybe this is too big a problem as one part, or maybe even my contribution is perhaps part of the problem rather than the solution or our overall mission. And I think this is something that's been, I guess, questioned a lot over the, over the past couple of years. Do you find that theme pop up with particularly those who've left the ADF? It's um, interesting. I think that's impacted quite a lot by media who are viewing it from a different lens. So people might de deploy and, you know, have that real sense of meaning and that they are over there to make a very positive contribution and then returning home and seeing that reflected from a different perspective from media who may suggest that, you know, it wasn't worthwhile or perhaps um, causing harm. And so at times you'll have people that now take that on board and reflect and it might change their feelings about their deployment. And, and I guess that's a, I'd imagine that will be a challenging thing for, you know, you and, and members of, of Open Arms to, I guess, deal with because we are so bombarded by media, you know, everywhere we turn. And if there is a narrative that's the kind of uh, the latest narrative of the day, then uh, that might have a significant impact on those who have served. Is that right? 
Yeah, and you can see it with um, the Vietnam veteran cohort in particular, as we we all know, um, on their return and America and and Australia feeling that uh, a perception they may not have been supported by the population for that and um, people refer to that having an impact on the mental health of that cohort. And what I see as well, because in this new role, um, obviously we're providing support to Vietnam veterans as well, is um, it kind of re-triggers when we, we see current perhaps negative perceptions about um, deployment or, or the um, Australian military in the media is almost re-triggering to that cohort because they can relate to what it felt like to not feel supported by the population. That's really interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, that's really interesting because it is, a, I guess, in the current climate, there is uh, a lot of that kind of uh, uh, guilt being uh, forced upon veterans. Um, so that's really interesting. And, and, and I guess it's, you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter what conflict, right? Eventually it'll, uh, it'll pop up, it will be questioned in some sense. Is that, um, is that helping current veterans uh, from the more recent conflicts to have the Vietnam vets as, uh, as, as I guess, mentors on how to deal with this pressure? I think, um, and you see a lot on social media, comments from veterans from different um, operations. And what I'm seeing is a, a strong theme of their being supportive to um, Afghanistan and Iraq um, veterans. So I think that is a very um, positive thing. I feel like the veteran community um, is um, a supportive space at the moment. Yeah, and maybe because I'm a veteran myself, but I certainly sense that it's that it's that it's that it's getting stronger, right? This there's a there's a feel that there are a lot of organisations out there that are seeking to help veterans deal with any issue they might have, whether that is transitioning into civilian life or or uh, organisations like yours who help with uh, mental health and other types of support. Um, is there a difference, or have you found in your experience uh, that there's a difference in the way conflict affects men and women? Yeah, that's an interesting um, point because um, I was actually looking back on it and having been a military psychologist, the vast majority, I mean about 90% of clients I've ever had have been men. And so it's quite rare to come across, uh, yeah, to have um, female clients. What I did notice is there were a lot of similarities between responses as a human, so not gender specific. So for example, if someone's killed, males and females equally express grief. I think it's some of it, um, I feel that men may not feel um, comfortable because uh, there's judgment about expressing things like grief or fear publicly, but the actual human reaction to big events I did find interesting, it was similar between different age groups and whether you're, you're male or female. And in fact, I actually, being over there in the war zone, I was in a positive way to see how much empathy and compassion that males had towards each other in coping with a, a, a critical event. So, for example, I had a senior um, officer express to me, he goes, I don't know what's, what's wrong with everyone. I don't know what's going on. They're all crying. They're all hugging each other. And <laughs> he was surprised by that. And my response is that's a perfectly normal reaction. And we actually want to be part of an army in which people are highly distressed when someone's killed. 
and that they do show that compassion to each other in um, moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, like you said, it's a it's a human response to an inhuman or inhumane event. Um, I guess the act of killing itself is rather obviously inhumane. That's uh, interesting to to hear, and I guess it kind of makes sense why you wouldn't have seen many many females. Obviously, the we still have far fewer females than literally the males, but also in the frontline units. And this is maybe a question because I, maybe I need to question my own bias based on what I've heard elsewhere as well. Perhaps there's a perception that it is the frontline units, those that go out and you know are, are, are fighting and those are predominantly male. Maybe it's a bias to think that they are the ones suffering most mental health issues. Is that is that true, or are people suffering mental health issues regardless of what type of job they do when they're on deployment? Yeah, there's two um, parts to that, and I'm glad you raised it because I've been thinking about it as we've been speaking. And my comment before that I noticed that it was the younger um, men around that were struggling, I think, with mental health issues. But when you look at it, who's on the front line? tend to be male and tend to be younger. So there's, there's more exposure to these type of things. I think that's actually quite a simplistic answer that, you know, I didn't identify. It is the young males that tend to be on the front line. But the other part to this is, no, it's you can have strong mental health responses and experiences without being deployed. And, and we know that we've seen the stats for that. And it can impact people that weren't exposed on the front line. I think part of this as well is when we talk about trauma response to things like combat or being in a war zone, we have to remember it's a very individual response. Um, there's not a blanket, you know, generalisation or a direct, a strong direct correlation. And I think part of this is because you could have five people exposed to the same event and their responses will be different, different because we're not blank slates when we turn up we have our own histories and we may be triggered in different ways and we we see the event through our own individual lens so in relation to that yes it's a, well it's an unfortunate thing mental health you know anyone is success, success sorry anyone um, can, can um, experience that and some of that is just dependent on their own life experience yeah and I guess this is the importance of having the, that, that kind of multiple touch points of psychological support. And maybe I, if, if you don't mind, I really want to go back to the kind of issue, the, the huge issue of veteran suicide, if, if you don't mind, because that's, a, that's really something that's rightly starting to get a lot more attention. Because as I, as I mentioned before, we've lost more than 500 veterans to suicide. Do you have an explanation as to why the rate is so high? Yeah, it's interesting. When we look at, the, there seems to be two large uh, groups here. And what I mean by that is when we look at the statistics and rates of suicide, the rates are less for current serving members than the Australian population, which suggests that there is something protective about being in the Australian Defence Force. Having said that, what we know, and you've pointed it out, um, particularly for that younger group, it's on transition where we're seeing that um, much higher likelihood for things like suicide ideation and attempts 
for those that are ex-serving have transitioned out. And so as you've rightly raised, why is that? Why does it increase? And I recently went to a, a frontline mental health conference, which involved the police the fireys and the ambos and they also when they talk about their stats see a spike for those that are ex-serving which brings me back to I do think that there's when we talk about what is protective it's about you know that feeling that you're something you're well supported have that good social network have good leadership etc there's something about transition where it's adapting actually to a new lifestyle and perhaps a new identity that yeah is problematic I think for some yeah and I think again it just kind of resonated again with me that that the notion of the tribe that you mentioned before because it the more I think about it it just makes intuitive sense and I'll have to fact check myself on this uh, but I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that collectivist societies have far uh, lower incidents of mental health uh, issues that individualistic societies like like ours which kind of goes to that point of, of having and in fact i can just think to sweden we lived in sweden for three years just recently and sweden is one of the highest has one of the highest suicide rates in the world and one of the highest if not the highest uh, rates of, of antidepressants and it is one of the most individualistic societies uh, in the world which uh, which perhaps there's a link maybe i'm just uh, uh, i'm reading too much into it but it, it would it would feel it would make sense and if if you're saying that other services or other security services are experiencing similar issues then there's certainly some sort of level of commonality between this idea of the tribe and we are so tribal in the defense force that it would almost kind of makes sense that that is a key contributing factor. So maybe going off from that, what, what are we what are we getting wrong then? Why are we not why are we unable as a society as institutions to you know stem this uh, this horrible horrible reality of veteran suicides? Um, I think we are changing. So if we're going to make the link from, you know, and I agree with what you've said about individualised uh, versus uh, collective um, societies, and my understanding is as well that, the, um, as, you, as you pointed out, the rate of suicide is less for those collective societies, and we can, um, you know, draw that link perhaps to the concept of the tribe. What I'm passionate about and what we're, we're trying to put more emphasis on is during the transition period, looking at at what it is people struggle with and there's been some really good work in this space by the Gallipoli Medical Research Foundation. They're looking at a program called Go Beyond and it's identifying through interview with many veterans for those that do, do well on transition what was useful for them and for those that struggle what it is what is it that they're struggling with and it's interesting that the things that they've come up with because as a veteran who's only recently transitioned from the military I do relate to uh, some of these things it's looking at what social supports do you have and hobbies and meaning um, outside of your actual job like so your social connection it's about how do you feel and reflect on your military experience and they refer to that if you've got anger and resentment about how you left the military you're more likely to you know be struggling with some mental health issues there it's about perceptions of civilians and and also about how flexible um, you are to take on different opinions so that's about being regimented or not they find that those that more strict and regimented might struggle um, on the outs um, on on the outside. So I think looking at exactly why are people struggling and the ones that are doing well, why are they doing well and trying to get there in there early 
Um, we should be doing this type of stuff, having these types of um, conversations before people actually discharge. Yeah, I mean, especially if it's uh, as you as you just pointed out that that regimentality, if that ha- if that is a key factor, well, that is something that's rewarded in the military, right? So that is something that's normally associated in your mind with a positive effect that, you know, the more regimented, the more orderly, the more organized you are, and the more responsive you are to the institution and what it asks of you to do, then that's, <laughs> that's, that's viewed as a positive, right? But if you then leave the military and carry that regimentality with you, yeah, again, it makes sense why it would be difficult to find ways in a world that is seemingly so disorganized, which is, it's obviously not, but coming from a very organized tribe, again, that tells you that at 7.30, you're doing physical training, you know, you have a unit, you don't have to think about what you're going to wear, you wear the uniform, uh, very very hierarchical organization you know who who's who in the zoo and who you need to address in which way and all that sort of stuff it it makes absolute sense that this would be a challenge so what are the and now to maybe just uh, and conscious of the time as well which i'm very appreciative of but uh, so um i'd really like to touch on perhaps the last key topic uh, and that's the treatment and i guess how we your the organization you're with right now uh, open arms supports treatment right maybe can you give us a a clear explanation as to what open arms actually does yes i'm happy to do that and i'm also happy to talk about what treatment like how do you treat um ptsd but i can do that in layman's terms because i feel that people haven't would not be um quite you know confident or sure if you go see a psychologist and it's to do with a trauma experience yourself you're not sure what to expect at all is it going to be like Freud where they lie you down on a couch and ask you about where you breastfed by your mother <laughs> um not my experience of um of psychology at all yeah but that's part of the that's part of the the, the false narrative that exists about right yeah. psychology so yeah please uh, yeah the floor is yours yeah i thought i might talk about that and i suppose the way that i explain it and I'll, it's in relation to trauma specifically so and this is how i explain it as when i have a client that first comes in and we talk about what we're going to do so it's referring to going through a traumatic event as if your brain is a filing cabinet it, something terrible uh, occurs and you're in shock and it's almost like the filing cabinet is blown up and the files are all over the ground. What psychology assists with is picking up the files one by one, looking through them, getting a sense of, you know, what they are and what they mean to you and then putting them in an ordered state back into the filing cabinet. With things like exposure therapy, it's based on what we want to get to is so that people aren't triggered as often or they know what it is that does trigger them and they can quickly put in some um, coping strategies. And also what we want over time is not to be so reactive or um, hypervigilant or have such a distress reaction to things because you're more, you habituate to them, you're exposed to it and you get a sense of why it is you're reacting that way. Um, So hopefully the symptoms won't be as extreme over time. I think uh, clients often talk about just the anxiety and fear of, of being out of control. 
you know, they'll talk about I just completely overreacted and I have no idea why I did that and then remorse over some sort of behaviour. And talking to a psychologist is trying to work out, well, let's work out between us. Why did you do that? And it's probably likely you might, you know, what was it about that situation? So, okay, this is good. We're getting some information here. We know that um, these type of things, um, situations, you act this certain way. What's the first sign that you you know, we're trying to get some insight here about the first sign you can pick up that you might um, be starting to act a certain way. And let's put in some coping strategies so that you can still be in the situation, not have to avoid it or, or, or run away from it, but you have more control. And I really feel that, um, you know, that psychological interactions really looking at um, providing greater insight so understanding why people are acting a certain way and then having a, a greater sense of control if things happen I know how I act and I also know what to do about it to to get that um, better sense of control so yeah that's how I would explain um, the benefits I believe of going to see a psychologist if you experience trauma issues if I if I understand you correctly the way that sums up in my head, it's almost, you know, making the unconscious conscious, right? Because oftentimes we have these responses or not oftentimes, you know, we, we, we react and oftentimes we're not really aware as to what, what the trigger was, what made me do that. Uh, like, you, you know, the example you cited of, you know, I have no idea what, you know, what made me do that. Um, and I think that's all of these unconscious things that are happening both in the mind and the body uh, that we're not consciously aware of and perhaps part of treatment is bringing that to light and 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 unpacking that to create a link okay so this is what my mind and my body are doing that I'm not really conscious of at the moment would that be accurate yeah yeah I think that's a really good summary um, of it is really to gain that that insight like know thyself and um, as I said the, the better or greater insight people have I think it um, really helps generate a sense of control. And with a sense of control, there should be less anxiety about it. As I said, I often hear it's, it can be frightening for people. They feel that they, that they went completely berserk or have no idea. And so they're always anxious because to them, it seems like they could just fly off the handle at any point. But when they have that, they, there are, when you start speaking to a psychologist, there's usually very strong themes in um, why people are behaving a certain way or in certain environments. And so gaining that insight means, yeah, they, they're able to have more control. And um, as I said, should decrease anxiety then. Mm. Yeah. And I guess, is that maybe why meditation as a practice has shown to be quite effective in managing anxiety and managing stress and also uh, to an extent to at least some research that I've read on, on uh, PTSD because it is about that kind of the insights and understanding how the how the mind the chattering mind at least how how powerful it can be when it roams freely and has the the ability to impact the rest of the the, the body I guess do you have any insights on that yeah, yeah, I think I'm referring to, yeah, as a chattering mind, a lot, of, and that's, and you've also referred to as things are almost, 
you know, very fast and automatic and that we need, to, the point is to slow it down and instead of just feeling, saying to someone that you're feeling very sad but you have no idea, when you speak to a psychologist, we'll go slow it all down and, and really have a look at the self-talk, which we're not aware of every single thought we have in our head. Um, if you slow it down and you're talking to a psychologist about it, what we often find for those that are depressed, for example, a lot of their self-talk is incredibly negative um, constantly. The chattering mind is constantly putting themselves down. Um, and what we're trying to do is slow that down, capture those thoughts and change them so that they're more realistic. They're not so, yeah, so negative and harmful to the person. And you can see with someone with anxiety, when you slow down their thoughts, a lot of them are very panicked and you know think you know catastrophizing if we're able to slow those down capture them and then reflect and say what's a more realistic response to this no that that, that really resonates with me i mean I, as, as a meditator that that kind of makes sense because the the whole point of meditation is to is to sit back and let the chattering mind do what it needs to do without letting you without letting those thoughts take hold of you and carry you. In other words, uh, that's negative self-talk where, you know, you start having a uh, go at yourself and your heart rate goes up and next thing you know, one thing leads to another. Whereas the whole idea of meditation is to have the ability or to, or to the, the practice is all about uh, sitting still and letting the mind do what it needs to do, but not getting attached to the mind, just realizing the thoughts just arise, they come and they pass away and they don't need to have the power over you as they have you know uh, oftentimes uh, particularly for any of us who are feeling any kind of stress or anxiety so that that really that actually really resonated with me um so just going back to to open arms what, what do you guys do to, to what, what services do you offer yeah sure, sure no problem so open arms was originally founded by uh, vietnam veterans and we started off doing the counseling we used to be called vvcs vietnam Vet veterans counseling service and the focus was providing that um, psychological therapy for veterans. Since then, we've expanded both in eligibility and also in the services that we provide. So as I said beforehand, it's not just about the individual. We know that we're part of society. We're also part of a family um, network as well. We've expanded eligibility. So it's for partners and families as well. So not only doing individual therapy, we do couples therapy and family therapy, but there's other areas that we work in now which is for example clinical care coordination and that's looking at it might not just be the the mental health issues but uh, you know what else is um, impacting on the veteran and their family and often it's things like accommodation um, finances career and just general well-being and health and our clinical care coordinators bring all of those things together another area that we've more recently expanded into which yeah i'm very passionate about this is the concept of a peer so it can be quite daunting for people to um, actually make an appointment to go and see a psychologist, particularly if they think it's going to rock up and see someone like Freud. What we have now are people that have a lived experience of being in the military. So they're a veteran themselves and they've got some mental health training, but they are not a mental health professional like a psychologist. And their role's a little bit different. It is that support. They talk about work um, walking alongside someone 
And it might be um, less daunting to go and see someone that has transitioned or has deployed um, and has gone through their own mental health issues and popped out, you know, on the other side. So we find that's very useful. I mean, you can see we all, we work in a multidisciplinary team. You might have a psychologist, you might have a social worker working alongside a, a peer as well. And I think what's good about this is we need a wide range of options to treat mental health because what fits for someone doesn't fit for others. I mean, gone are the days where the only way to address mental health symptoms is to go and see a, a psychologist. As I said, there's a whole range, including... We do group programs as well, which are really useful for those that um, in, enjoy, you know, that group atmosphere, sitting in a room with other people that have similar symptoms and going through the treatment or just education on um, suicide prevention, for example. Yeah, so quite large now, eligibility and also a huge range of ways that um, we support mental health. I love the language of peer rather than, you know, the kind of more traditional, I don't know, mentor, sponsor, which all of those imply a level of hierarchy. Whereas peer, it's a, that, that just struck me as so powerful. This is somebody who is of my status, who's equal to me. This is not me going to whinge about my life to someone, or this is not me asking for professional help, which all of those things are hugely important, but also have an emotional load, right? They're, they're emotionally taxing. Whereas speaking to a peer, right? It's 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 just it's 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 just someone like me who's been through what I've been through. I think that's that's just so spot on. That the moment you said that the program is that that's the name, I think that's yeah, that really that really struck me. I'm guessing obviously that was a very very conscious choice. What what was the reason behind that name? Oh well, exactly as have you've just um, summarised it there. There is no hierarchy and there's no judgment there, and it's coming. What people really uh, we found are appreciating is speak to someone, and that's the beauty of lived experience, who has been through something similar. So when they say things like "I know how you feel," which you should never say as a psychologist, for example, but a peer may be in a better a position to be able to do that because they've had um, similar experience. As I said, they've, they've deployed, they've gone through transition. And I saw it, it, it really struck me. I saw it recently. We um, had a, a client, a current serving client that was at risk of suicide whilst they were at one of our office spaces. And what we needed to do is get that person back to the base so that we could get them into their medical system. But we had to find out a way to get them back to the base. So what I did is walk out, grab one of my peers, and they're always so good with this, like reacting on the spot, and um, ask if they would drive this client back to the base. So you can see there, they're not doing a psychological intervention, but they're doing, that's that walk alongside. It's being someone who's calming, understands, and it was, as someone said, peers aren't taxi drivers, and that's not what I'm referring to. It was that feeling of support um, and non-judgment. being there for them, yeah. Exactly. And do you know what I, I saw? So this was quite a, um, it was a, a young man that was in crisis at the time, and my peer was an older army peer, and you could, it's instant rapport with that lived experience. He, the peer walked in and was like, G'day, mate, I'm such and such. I'm here to drive you to the base. How are you going? in a really relaxed manner. And even just with the age difference there, there was there was instant rapport, but it almost felt you saw the relief on the younger man's face. It honestly felt like dad's here to pick you up from school. It was just like, like the relief. 
an instant rapport. And I think that's the beauty of the um, peer team. You'll even notice that, um, and I notice it being ex-serving, if I go to meetings and refer to the fact that I'm ex-army, there's always someone in this space that is as well. And you're almost friends immediately or, you know, you're, yeah, this person's going to be okay. I can trust them. There is that kind of, as I said, the veteran community is incredibly supportive and you do see that instant kind of I can trust you is one of those things if, you, if you're ex-serving and, you know, someone else is. So I think that's what the, that peer program really um, leans on. And as I said, I've seen it work instantly and very well. That's beautiful, Pip. That that really got me. That story. That's um. That's really powerful. I think that's, again, it speaks to a lot of the themes that we've talked about, right? And again, intuitively makes sense. This person is from my tribe. They know what I can immediately identify, or they can immediately identify what I'm going through. How do you recruit people into that program, as in so, to be peers? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a very popular um, program. So what we recently went to recruit for our Ipswich office and it was we only had one position there and we had over 33 applicants. So what's really positive about that is people really want to be involved in this role. Um, it's, it's, yeah, really impressive. There's ex-serving members that really want to go out and be able to support um, others. Yeah, and so what we look for in those roles, as I said, the lived experience, so as a um, serving military member, and also the experience of having a mental health issue, but being to the stage where they're now able to manage that and are quite stable themselves, so they're able to provide support to others. So you can see from it's two-pronged. Um, they understand the military because they used to be in it, and they also know what it's like to experience a mental health disorder. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah a powerful mix, obviously, very relevant to the, the circumstances that it, it's designed to support. So, you know, w w well done for that program. But is so it's a you kind of recruit people and they, they end up working there or is this are these kind of voluntary positions? No, they end up, yeah, sorry, they do. They end up working as part of Open Arms and we also provide um, mental health training for them. So, and they're part of the team. Um, they're part of a, a bigger peer team. But the important thing is, and that's where I see our real value, is when we work as a multidisciplinary team. So those peers might be working, they might have the same client as a psychologist, but you see they're supporting the same person in a different way. Um, so they're very much part of the team at Open Arms. That's also really interesting, um, uh, Pip. And one area that um, we haven't touched so far, and that is, uh, I guess, the impact on families. And you've when we started our conversation, you said that, um, you know, part of what motivated you, A, to join the military, but also to uh, get into psychology was certainly uh, the experiences you've had as, a, as, as, a, as an army brat, as you uh, refer to it. How important is it to provide support to family? How important are families, A, in the support to our veterans, but also how important is support for families? Yeah, no, again, really um, good questions. And families really are the protect, protective family uh, a factor for, for veterans. Often people don't actually go out to get psychological um, care until they're in an absolute crisis, but the day-to-day -day stuff, who they're speaking to, who they're disclosing um, things to, it's often their partner and family members. And so they're really the front line in the support to veterans and mental health issues. 
Alongside that, though, you can imagine the day-to-day efforts in providing that support has impact on them as as well. And so that's why um, Open Arms, where we've expanded our eligibility for partners and children, because it's recognising the impact that a a partner or parent service in the military can have on, um, on you as um, the, the child or the partner. So there's a range of things with this. We know with military families, they say one person joins, but the family serves. And um, that there's impacts on long-term career for partners. Um, and there's the constant moving as well and the impact that has on, you know, children changing schools frequently. And we can see that down the line as well. I mean, the statistics do show that... Uh, particularly for the adult children of current and ex-serving veterans. They tend to uh, describe much greater psychological stress than the, you know, matched for age and gender in the population. So we can see that military service does have an impact on, on the family. Mm. And that's why we're focused on, um, particularly this year, Open Arms is it's the year of the family and um, recognising the impacts it has on them, but also um, recognising the value and the effort they put into that day-to-day support to veterans. Yeah. And again, it makes absolute sense why... Um why that is an important aspect. And uh, and one of my previous guests, uh, Brendan Cox, who heads up uh, Legacy in Brisbane, he's also expressed uh, the importance of that. And I think Legacy in particular uh, pays attention to to, to families. What are some of those things that, that, that you're finding you can be most helpful with for families? So we do, um, family therapy actually is in great demand at the moment, which is positive thing and and couples therapy when we look at our service delivery statistics for open arms huge spike in the need for that family therapy which I just think is so important I think for any mental health issues it's important to catch those early and I'm always have a pleasant reaction when um, you know I'm working in the office and you can have hear very young you know children laughing or in the corridors that we're getting in there so early we're providing support to them when they're quite young rather than you know this avoidance of it and um, dealing with it down the track so I just really think it's incredibly important to be able to provide those the couples therapy and the family therapy support yeah absolutely that's again hugely hugely powerful and hugely important um again the impact of uh, of service the the way you phrased it you know it's the family that serves I really again really like that um maybe I can ask a few more personal questions looking back on your extensive military career and working in a particularly sensitive area of dealing with the hardest right as in the people that are going out on the front lines and on deployments and are you know experiencing extreme trauma ultimately you and your team teams see the worst of war because you only really are called upon to support the really, really bad stuff. How do you look after yourself? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it because I'll often be asked who psychs the psych. And to be honest, when working in some of these really extreme situations, I, I didn't feel that I was supported or supervised as much as I could have been. But what I relied on um, was and this I think makes sense, it's my peers, it was the padre, it was the doctor, that again, we might be seeing the same client, but in very different ways. 
So I think it's just so important because you know how we're talking about response to coping with trauma, that social supports and networks are so important. And so it's just to be very much aware that where to go out and to seek um, that support from people that, again, truly understand because they're going through the same sort of thing. So that's, I feel, what got me through when I was on the ground overseas. I had um, some issues myself with vicarious trauma. So I was doing um, quite a bit of night work, nightmare work with clients and then got to the stage where I started having their nightmares. Yeah, so that's not too unusual. You can imagine if you're doing that day in, day out, going through people's horrible nightmares, that it can stick with you as well. So I got support um, myself to get through that. And thankfully, that wasn't a long, long-term long thing. I think working in this space with trauma, you've got to make sure that you're looking after yourself. And that's even that simple stuff, like you're eating well, that you're um, exercising regularly and that you've got... you've got joy in your life you something outside of what can be quite a intense and dark space Um, I I think that's um, really useful as well and you've got to be very careful with your boundaries so I get asked as well is how do you talk about this stuff all day with people and then go home and sleep at night (laughs) Um, and so it's about learning over time and it's difficult when you, you you learn fast when you're junior you have to be able to have that boundary up to be able to kind of switch off as you get in your car to go home and not to keep ruminating over certain clients. So that's a very important skill to have as well. Yeah, and it's got to be tough to do as well. And and I guess in, in many ways, it, it, it equally gives you a lived experience because you have to ultimately apply all the various tools that you're asking your clients to or you're helping your clients to apply, uh, which again makes you undoubtedly very qualified to be dealing with these issues. And of course, the more experience you have, the more you've had to deal with. So that's a, again, that's, that's kind of an interesting dynamic. Again, looking back on your career, when you think of your uh, 17, 18 years of service, what stands out? What are some of the standout? You mentioned, you know, your 2010 Afghanistan deployment, but are there any particular moments that you think that would either negative or positive that are kind of the the the, the wave tops or the pillars of, of your experiences across all those years? Um, as I said, the deployments naturally um, stand out, and it's a bit about um, being exposed when you can actually see, uh, like resilience is a word we throw around um, a lot, but when you see it in crisis on the ground, it just makes your jaw drop. And as I said, the um, also witnessing in line with this um, incredible leadership skills of, at the time, very young individuals. I remember um, I've got fond memories of I had um, a Lance Corporal come in and see me. This is when I was over in Afghanistan and we had our session and at the end of it he said, um, oh, no, that was great, ma'am. Um, I don't mean to be rude, but I was just checking out, to be honest, if you're a dickhead or not. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> because, um, but you seem pretty good. You've passed the test and now I want you to see all of my guys. And so what he had lining out, I didn't know by the corridor, was his team. And I thought that was really sweet. And not only did, um, and so that, I think that's good leadership on his behalf. I think it's good. He went in to see that if I was worth the time or not before he um, exposed his team to it. But that he was also very much aware of getting, being proactive and getting mental health support to his team. And in fact, because they would only come back into touch base 
and now and then he had organized it every time they touch base they have to come and speak to the psych and I just thought that was amazing leadership really um, at the time and I think looking back also some of the stuff that people were exposed to and just the not only were they able to deal with it but how much support they gave to others and it's compassionate leadership is an area that I'm really interested in because that's what I saw was getting everyone through. Those that, not just leadership, that showed compassion and were authentic um, in a situation that didn't um, avoid talking about what's happened, the horrible event, that acknowledged it and were also understanding of quite extreme responses from people when something like this happens. And you see all these things that you read in books about resilience or about the importance of morale, leadership and cohesion and then when there's a crisis on the ground and to actually see when it's good for it all come together and that's how we survive and see I'm talking about we it's that tribe again you really feel we're all in this together and we're going to get through it those are the kind of memories that uh, you know I reflect fondly on yeah and no one will tell you the truth as uh, as quickly and rapidly and openly as uh, as soldiers will so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, just that funny. I even shook my hand when he said that. <laughs> yeah, and, and hey, that's what a compliment, right? I mean, and I mean that in the most genuine way. I mean, that's the that's the pure, raw honesty, and that's a, absolutely fantastic. Um, Pip, on that note, uh, you have been very, very gracious with your time. I know we've gone somewhat beyond our agreed time. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I want to thank you for all the work you have done in service and the work or in military service and the work you continue to do as part of Open Arms, which is, of course, also service to the veterans and their families. There's so much more that we could uh, unpack areas that we can go into, and I certainly hope that we'll get a chance to uh, pick up this conversation again in the future. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.